0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation Podcast. Today, we are joined by John Gearing. John is the founder of JBG Consulting and Advisory and is a fashion and sportswear executive with extensive experience in retail since 1996. He guides and optimizes retail businesses in Asia Pacific and the Middle East, providing strategic insights to private enterprises and investors from Bangalore, Hangzhou and Edinburgh. In our conversation with John, we gain valuable insights on how to succeed in the APAC region. We discuss the importance of adapting brands to be relevant locally and investing in direct-to-consumer channels. We talk about the Indian market and why it's significant for businesses to partner with the right people and understand the right model. We also touch on the e-commerce landscape in India and China and the competitive nature of businesses in those countries. We conclude our discussion by exploring the exciting future of India. Enjoy.
1: I think if you go in with your eyes wide open, if you partner with the right people in the market, if you don't try to over control, if you get beyond the two pervasive myths in my view, one, I'm an international brand, therefore, everybody's going to buy my product from the get-go and they're going to love me, right? And two, I can do in Bangalore exactly what I do in Marylebone, London, right? And it's going to be great. If you can get beyond those two simple blockers and work out what's at the core of your brand, work out what is stone, what is wood, what is clay at every level, you have a very, very good shot at at being successful in the Asia-Pacific market.
0: Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under-30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Okay, where in the world are you placed today that we are recording you from? So right now I'm actually at my home in
1: Edinburgh, um, at the west end of Edinburgh. I came in from India uh, via Dubai and uh, last Friday.
0: Awesome. Okay, yeah, I don't think if I remember correctly, we have never recorded anybody uh, from Scotland uh, or who is currently based in Scotland. So this is this is new for us. Um, hey, quick. What's the weather like over there?
1: Um, it's really, really warm. I mean, I, I love summer in Scotland. Last year, it was Wednesday, the 22nd of June. This year, we seem to be having a slightly more prolonged uh, summer period. Um, it's 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 about 22, 23 degrees out there. It's warm.
0: And then we're talking Celsius, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, we do Celsius here in Canada too, but I just thought I'd point that out because uh, maybe some of our American listeners might have thought, holy smokes, you think that's warm?
1: Okay. Well, it is Scotland.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Give us a quick introduction into yourself and the work that you do at your consultancy, JBG Consulting and Advisory.
1: Sure. I mean, I I, I went to Asia 30 years ago almost to the day actually the day I turned 21 um, and I'm about to turn 51 for those of you who can't do quick maths um, and I've been there on and off ever since um, I originally went out there on a secondment to the Royal Hong Kong Police so you're talking to one of the last colonial police officers um, I did about three years before coming back to the UK very quickly um, and, and uh, starting my commercial career so you know and then I was back in China. I saw China in the early years, 98, 99, when it was all just beginning. Um, and then via different jobs and educational institutions, uh, I bounced around Asia, really, Thailand, Taiwan, China. Um, and a little bit in the UK and even Scandinavia as well. And I've really been running consumer brands um, throughout that time. Um, the last two sort of roles to bring everybody up to speed. I was a portfolio MD for VF Corporation um, when we acquired Timberland. That came into my portfolio a couple of years after the acquisition. Um, that was a that was a tough job um, for sure. That was a, a big beast. Um, and after leaving VF, in fact, just before leaving VF, actually, um, I was asked to be part of one of the founding group of what what is now called Contour Brands, uh, which was a spin-off of the Lee and Wrangler uh, jeans brands from VF. Um, and we listed in May 2019 in New York. Um, my role there was to run Asia Pacific, be part of the global leadership team. Um, and uh, I've just wrapped up with Contour, a um, uh, pretty, pretty lengthy process, actually. So I continue to work with them for a year or so beyond my original plan. Uh, and indeed, I'm still working for them uh, as an advisor on a number of matters. Um, and now I'm really operating. I'm, I'm enjoying being an independent operator, which brings a... Uh, A lot of freedom, actually. For example, I can do this podcast and speak freely um, about Asia and the business and my experience. Uh, without having an army of PR people behind me saying what I can, <laughs> what I can say, and what I cannot, um, I think you know I'm very much focused now on working in the private market space. I found public markets uh, increasingly difficult to operate in. There is a real tension between doing the right thing to grow a brand over time and doing the right thing for the quarterly calls, the earning reports, and therefore the short-term stock price. Um, I found that tension increasingly onerous. Um, And so I'm really focusing now on, I'd say small to medium enterprises, you know, below 300 million in turnover, um, privately held or private equity backed because I feel like I can add more value, impact businesses, Um, more directly and more quickly in that space. Um, So I work with family offices, for example, who are looking to invest or acquire consumer brands. I work with private equity firms who already have them or are looking to turn them around. Um, And and so that's where I am now. I'm I'm really enjoying it, actually. I'm a lot busier than I expected. This was supposed to be semi-retirement. It hasn't felt like that at all. It lasted about a week.
0: Well, I don't know if we ever really retire. Um, I hopefully... I certainly don't see myself sitting on a beach every day uh for for a decade uh doing nothing. I'm no. probably gonna be handing something until they tell me to go away. Um <laughs> which will eventually happen. I, I, I
1: agree with you. I think it's more about choice than stopping.
0: Yeah. It's just maybe diminishing some of the workload and and more time doing some things like golf. But uh, you know, we'll <laughs> we'll see. Um so I want to lean in a bit on some of the APAC focused leadership posts that you've, you've had. Um, Absolutely. I know you mentioned VF and contour. Uh, we've seen Adidas, uh, in your, in your yes. background, um, company called boots.
1: Okay. <laughs> company called boots. Um, yeah. Boots. Uh, it still is, I think it's the UK's biggest, uh, chemist, large format, small format. Um, and they are currently owned, I think by
0: Walgreens. Oh wow! Okay. Um, yeah, Walgreens purchased them several years ago. I thought maybe there was a typo when I came across. I'm like, does he mean roots? No,
1: but no, 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 no. It was uh, a company founded in the 19th century by a guy called Jesse Boot, uh-huh. um, and um, it, it was a, a magnificent company in business. I'm sure it still is in many ways, but it's no, it's no longer standalone. It's been swallowed up by Walgreens, I think. <laughs> Um, I think that's still the case. Okay. Um, so yeah, I was I was boot I was retail I was not, I was busy development for them in Asia Pacific. They owned things like Nurofen and uh, and other drugs at the, other OTC drugs at the time as well.
0: Okay. Well, maybe if you don't mind, we could walk through and have you walk us through a bit of that that timeline of when you were at H one and what your role was, some of the impactful stuff that you did in APEC. and and I think along the way. Just teaching our audience a little bit about you know, uh, about that area, about that roles, about the struggles, about the wins, about the the stuff that you learned, um, and, and any surprises that you had along the way.
1: Absolutely. I, I think what I'd like to do is I'd like to start um, with my role at Adidas, which started in 2005. I think that's okay. far enough back. Okay. Um, or Adidas, as I know you chaps like to <laughs> say. Um, <laughs> But, but 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 it is Adidas, just to be. I fair. agree. It is. I know. <laughs> so look, I, I sort of I joined. Um, it was interesting actually because. I, I was head of M and A for a. I was still in the this sort of the, the the healthcare sector really. I was I was head of M and A for a big British opticians at the time, very acquisitive. Um, and for personal reasons, I needed to go back to Hong Kong, and I had these two job offers. One was to work with KPMG in their consumer M and A practice, and one was um, for Adidas setting up their retail business. And I remember the guy from KPMG saying to me, you know, the job's yours, John, if you want it. But bear this in mind, I spent my whole life wanting to be on the other side of the desk. So I I took the Adidas role. But really, that was a one-man band job. Um, Adidas, like a lot of brands in Asia at the time, and in fact still now, were accidental retailers because multi-brand formats didn't they really, still don't really exist in China, although that is changing very quickly. So Adidas suddenly found itself with a thousand plus shops called Adidas, but with no infrastructure, very little capability to run those stores. And some of them were directly owned and some of them were, were franchised. And if you can't run your own stores directly, it's very hard to tell your franchisees how to run their store operations. So, you know, my, my role there, and we built a team out to do it, was uh, to create a regional retail capability management capability so strategic control um, tactical support that's the way I like to to frame it up um, and and a lot of brands have found themselves in that position I've actually found myself doing it pretty much the exact same role for a short period of time in VF when they too realized that they suddenly had 5,000 stores across the region but retail excellence per se wasn't wasn't really one of their core competencies at the time. And they recognized that. Um, so you know, we, we did that for Adidas. And and I think one of the dangers there, and, and actually um, one of the things I learned and took away from me there, was the importance of not trying to control the local markets, the importance of just providing a strategic framework and tactical tools. Strategic direction and control, yes. This is what the short stores look like. This is the kind of productivity you should expect. Um, you know, support services, fixtures and fittings and so on and so forth that we can buy and get volume benefits and we can help with training and so on. But you've really got to let the local markets do what the local markets need to do within that strategic framework. And that is a, 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 a an absolute central pillar of how I've managed businesses ever since. Um, uh, in in Asia back and and generally, you know, trying to control the minutiae of what a, a market operator is doing, whether it's franchise or your own team, is is a, a waste of time and B I think um you're you're turning away from a lot of local insight and a, local, a lot of local expertise that will actually help your business. So I was around five years in uh, in Adidas and running the retail business there. And then I moved to a, a, a much smaller brand, um, True Religion Brand Jeans, which was absolutely at its peak of popularity at the time. And we were able to sell denim at four or five hundred US dollars. And But again, you know, they were a victim of their own popularity because they were selling in a huge amount of merchandise into markets like South Korea and even into China. But they had no infrastructure in the region, it was all done out of LA and through sales agents. So there was no control of how the brand was showing up. Right? There was very little control in terms of where the brand was being distributed, actually. So again, there's another key lesson there. Right? You can keep selling in But without the discipline, without that operational control, you're going to end up with inventory gluts. You're going to end up with your brand not being presented the way you want it presented. You're going to end up uh, in bed with distributors that you don't want to be in bed with who aren't taking care of your brand. So very, very much a key lesson there. Now, I didn't spend too long at True Religion Brand Jeans. I only spent a couple of years Um, there. Um, The primary reason for that, and I feel like I can say this in the podcast, is that um, I fell in love with my sales director and we ended up getting married. So that clearly wasn't a role that I could continue in, Right? ultimately conflicted. I always say that uh, that I, I fell in love with my wife while she was presenting the line. Right. She's still the best wholesale presenter I've ever seen. Um, so I didn't stay there for long. I chose, I chose my marriage um, over my, my job. Um, and luckily, uh, VF came along and I, I was taken into VF as, as the, the, the contemporary fashion Portfolio MD for Asia Pacific. I had a, a pretty broad portfolio of businesses. Um, and I have to say that I spent the first six months in VF, despite my MBA and all and the inside qualifications, I spent my first six months at, at VF feeling like the thickest guy in the room because it was such high quality people that I was working with, and they were working at such pace, at such detail, and with such commercial acumen that you know, I just decided to shut up and listen and learn for six, nine months and, and really not do much at all. Um, I, I was full of admiration for, for that, that that business and learned so much from there. But ultimately, I, I think I, I hope I found my feet and, and ended up um, taking on Timberland into my portfolio, Nautica. I think I did about 10 brands for them in the end, whether that was, you know, just post acquisition, full management or helping with the disposal. Um, But honestly, you know, VF was a machine uh, and and a fairly exhausting machine. And and at that point I was um, ready to take a break, but, um, you know, Scott Baxter, the CEO and chairman of Contour Brands as it now is, gave me a call and said, look, John, with your denim background, because I had Seven for Mankind, some other brand, True Religion brand jeans, of course. He said, look, you know, VF's allowing me to spin the, the, the Lee and Wrangler a brand, you know, would you come on board as one of the founders? It was just too good an opportunity to say no to. And again, I, I've got to say, I think Contour really got it right. They, they, they took the best of VF and married it with Scott's vision for how a business should be run. Um, and and created something very very special, um, and and I don't think I mean I'm about to, I don't think they've put a foot wrong in in the four or five years that that I've been working with them. Um, I think they've got a great balance uh, of um, global control and regional and market execution. I think they've got a great balance between that VF sort of cutting edge uh, business management. Um, but also allowing people uh, the work-life balance and the great, the great culture that's inculcated in the business. So I, I really think Contour was a great time for me to quit, as it were, corporate life because I just don't know how it would get too much better, frankly. And, and taking everything I learned along, those, along, along that journey and, and working with, as I say, you know, in the private market space, um, felt really like the right time. So that kind of brings you up to where we
0: are today. I have to ask as a North American and the (laughs) brand, the brand building that Wrangler has done throughout my lifetime and what I think and how I feel when I hear the brand name Wrangler. And then I think about Asia or China. Okay. So I don't, see a fit i guess in a way what i'm saying i feel like you're supposed to be on a horse or on a ranch or driving cattle in yellowstone and you know so how, how did that go with those brands lee very similar as well into the asia region
1: so um, Lee and Wrangler under a VF, were reasonably separate from, um, from the U.S. and Europe and, and developed their own product, but you know adhering to the core DNA of the brand. Um, so honestly, Lee is, Lee is very successful. Um, I I don't want to go into the detail of the metrics around that, but it's very successful in China and Asia generally. Wrangler has been very good um, for our licensee partners outside of China. And then we launched in China a couple of years back. Absolutely not a great time to launch. You'd imagine just before the COVID lockdown and all the other bits and pieces that we had to contend with. But the marketing folks, um, and in particular, the the global marketing folks working in collaboration with the Asia-Pacific marketing leader, you know did a lot of research as to what sits behind that cowboy element for the Wrangler brand you know not cowboy but what sits behind it what's the spirit of the cowboy you know, individuality you know standing up for what you believe in freedom of thought all of this good stuff and i've just butchered that the marketing guys would do a much much better job but a lot of brands are going to face that right you need to you need to take a step back and distill the brand to to its 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 essence, right? its core characteristics, and then think, well, how can I take that and apply that so that it's locally relevant and appeals to the consumer in whatever market I'm operating in? The idea of a cookie cutter is a myth. Everybody wants to believe it. Every brand you want to talk to says, look, I'm going to do all my product in out of San Francisco, out of London, out of New York, out of Paris. Louis. There are very, very few brands that can do that. Very, very few. Uh, and I think most of them are in the sort of the super luxury space, right? Um, and there, there is no cookie cutter, right? You, you, you have to do that. You have to go through that. So I, I, I talk about a brand being, and, and I take this right down to the seasonal toolkits that we provide our partners, it's the three elements. You know, it's, it's stone, it's wood, and it's clay, Right, Some elements are stone. They're carved in stone. Don't mess with them. Don't touch them. It has to look like this. Probably a logo, probably a color palette, and certainly that brand DNA, that essence, right? Um, and then there's a bunch of stuff that I would classify as wood, right, which is, yeah, it's pretty solid, but you can carve this around. You can reshape this to a, to a degree, right, to make it relevant for your market. Right that may be um, for example a, a local campaign that's to keep on really easy Christmas right Christmas in North America a window for a, a store at Christmas in North America is going to look quite different to the one in Shanghai right but the tonality will be the same it's still Christmas and then there's play which i don 't really care what you do with right it's just aspects it's tools it's things that you can you can adopt or not adopt. Um, But if you don't adopt it, then I'm going to need to see what you are going to do. And I'm going to need my folks to make sure that it's still consistent. That's the way you get global, Mm -hmm. global consistency with local relevance. And again, I've, I've, I've summarized that to the nth degree, but that is essentially what it is, you know, at the, at the tactical level, you know, I call it the season in a box for a partner or a market. Here's the season. This is stone. This is wood. This is clay that makes
0: sense? I like that. no, that absolutely makes sense. I mean, you're going from what you can't mess around with, um, and this is fixed to what you can carve and maybe manipulate um, to what you can just fully mold, um, which yes. is, is the clay, right? so exactly. yeah, no, I, I really like that let's let's st- let's stay with that two thousand and five marker with the Adidas time and move forward from there. And what I want to ask you is, and you touched on something like COVID. Okay. That's obviously been something that dramatically shifted all areas of life, uh, including marketing and brands and entry and stuff like this. But what about uh, just a, a timeline from your perspective and in your opinion of, say the last 18 years of market conditions because I don't know of anywhere in the world where things have changed more or more times or turned over than they have in China over the last 18 years. So maybe just your thoughts and opinions on how market conditions have changed and evolved over you know the 18 years since 2005.
1: Oh, that's a great question. And I'm gonna enjoy answering this, but I'm gonna start with the way Ernest Hemingway described going bankrupt. He said it was slowly, slowly, and then all of a sudden. And that is what's happened in <laughs> not just China, but the APAC markets in general. Right? So let's let's start on the on the periphery before we get into China because that's a bigger topic. I mean, let's look at Japan's influence. Right, Everybody in the fashion and sports space used to say, right, you've got to succeed in Japan. Japan informs style and trend and everything else and what good looks like for the rest of the region. That was true in 2005. That's not true anymore. It's still a fantastic place producing some fantastic um, products and campaigns and, and, and business practices. Don't get me wrong, but it is nowhere near. The influence that it was. Whereas South Korea was nowhere. South Korea was a copycat from a style and trend and fashion point of view. You know, it, it really was. It just, you know, where, where everybody else went, they sort of followed on. South Korea is absolutely leading the charge now in things like retail operations, retail tech, brand marketing, um, product. Amazing. I mean, the, the, the contour licensee in, in South Korea has just done a phenomenal job. And of course, it's it's extremely popular. I mean, I was on a call this morning morning with some folks in Australia, and they were saying, can you get us access to South Korean designers? Um, All the way down in Australia. I mean, that was a surprise to me. So, you know, that sort of style, fashion, trend, cutting-edge business has fundamentally shifted as well. But if you look at China now, right, look, my favorite rip-off in 2005, they had 300 shops in China, and it was called Adidas. <laughs> right. Adidas, right? And and really, of course, that's an extreme, and, and you know, I've taken, I've used a deliberately extreme example there, a slightly amusing example to make a point, right? Which is, that's kind of what China was. You know, the local brands were either outright copycats like that, or Kind of just nowhere, right? Chinese brands now are doing incredibly well. They do an amazing job. They do an amazing job with production, with design, with, with, with retailing, with branding. You know, I get asked the question a lot, you know, who should we be looking at as a competitor? And of course, in everybody's mind, if you're Adidas, it's Nike. If you're, if you're Contour, maybe it's Levi. You know, but actually, the answer I always give is you need to look at the local brands, guys right because they are absolutely eating your lunch and, and covid has massively exacerbated that because whilst everybody all the international brands almost in, in, in i can say almost all frankly um, you know, took a huge step back from china stopped investing you know the sales weren't there geopolitics was kicking off there was lots of reasons very sensible reasons to be wary but whilst they did that The local brands all took a huge step forward and invested in their stores, invested in their concepts, invested in CRM, invested in their design capabilities. It's going to be really hard for international brands who took that step back to regain that territory. Really difficult. Um, and you know it used to be again another huge change and I'm sure you've seen this and I'm sure lots of people on your podcast have spoken about this there was a time let's be honest you could turn up in China with an international brand pop it in a few hundred department stores open a couple of flagships and you were good as gold right? because it was an international brand that is absolutely not true the, the playing field has shifted now It's gone from you're an international brand, I'd rather buy you, to being a level playing field, which is you're an international brand, um, I'm only gonna buy you if you're you're as good as the China brand or better than the China brand, sorry, right? To where we are now on a macro level, where I think a lot of consumers are thinking, look, I really wanna buy Chinese, right? So if you're an international brand, you've really got to convince me. You've really got to convince me why I should buy you rather than the the uh, the, the home brand. The term, the Mandarin tail, I'm sure you know, is quartile, right? Um, massive, massive change. And then moving further west to India, where I've just spent the last three months getting into the detail of a business there and the market there, Uh, you know, India has kind of, you know, made faltering steps forward. I mean, we all know the demographic story. We all know, you know, we all know that one and why that should be good, but it never quite was. But now, India is just moving so quickly, and the consumer is moving so quickly. India, to me, feels a lot like China in the late 90s, but they're gonna get there quicker. Um, yeah, I really believe that. I'm I'm an India bull. They will get there quicker. So I I I believe strongly that you know China is still a fantastic market to to be in. You need to be there. You know all the noise that is around the place. It, yes, I get it. Right? Of course, I get it. But it's still 1.4 billion people. It's still heading broadly in the right direction. It's still growing four five percent a year. It's tougher. It's not easy like it was. Right, There's lots more competitions, as I've just pointed out, but it's still a fantastic market to be, whereas India is just at the beginning. And and I don't think many brands have worked that out yet. I think they're still mired in the justifiable uh, views and perceptions of India that have formed over the last 10, 15 years. It, it's fundamentally changing, Todd.
0: A lot of your more recent background, I would say, or at least it was increasingly important from what we're, you know, disseminating from from your background is that, you know, direct to consumer channels became increasingly important. Um, and and obviously we saw, you know, with drop shipping and, and you know, Shopify type platforms and whatnot, it, it became huge. Um, and I was interested kind of in what you said about the growth of local brands. I think it because they were the masters of manufacturing and processes and and building. What they did seem to lack was the ability to actually market and grow a brand and do brand building that wasn't um, there wasn't a you know, a large amount of muscle memory, uh, or, you know, a muscle in though in those areas just across the country. Uh, I, I think if they, they'd be able to invest in it and quickly scale that up now, but 10 years ago, it wasn't necessarily there. So looking, and, and I know a lot of manufacturers, they built amazing plants, but they were looking for international brands, uh, to sell to because that was going to be the more difficult, um, hill for them to climb. Um, drop shipping. shipping really kind of came on the forefront You'd go on aliexpress or Mall or something find a supplier who makes some co- some things you think i could market that and make a fortune by selling that that five cent thing for five dollars here um and then you know amazon fulfillment centers can handle everything and it, it, we, this whole thing um and that is changing now as well um but back to kind of the question that i i want to ask is about how e-commerce changed the game for retail brands over the years in APAC?
1: Um, another, another really good question and something I could talk about for hours, so I'll try to, uh, I'll try to curtail my enthusiasm on this topic. The, where we are today is that it is impossible, really, to look at your business and say, this is wholesale, this is a shop, this is a brick-and-mortar store, and this is my e-commerce business. Right. You can't look at it like that. And yet, that, that's the way almost many, many businesses are structured. Everything is a touch point with the consumer. All of those are just nodes in a network of touch points with the consumer. And once you've grasped that, you start to look at the business completely differently. You, know, you used to sign off stores at a store level, right? The four wall needs to be 20% or whatever it is, You know, profitability assessment. You can't do that anymore because if you do that, you won't be opening stores in the right location. You need to take a big step back and look at the whole portfolio of the business across all of those channels and say, how does this contribute? Not just from a revenue and profit perspective, but also from a brand perspective perspective from consumer touch point. Is this store click and collect? Is it a a distribution center? What is it? What is the purpose of this store? That's what e-commerce has done. It, it, It has completely altered the way retailers and brands need to look at their network, at their distribution networks, completely altered. And that has happened back to Ernest Hemingway, slowly, slowly, and then all of a sudden. I would say that now, without wanting to sound like I'm using hyperbole here, I'd say if you don't look at your business in Asia Pacific like that, you are unlikely to be able to scale it Mm. because you are unlikely to be able to achieve the kind of returns you need to achieve to justify that investment. If you just look at a store network or a franchise network or e-commerce or whatever it is, you have to look at it very differently.
0: There is hours of conversation to be had on that i i have a bit of a logistics background i used to wear the brown and drive the truck back in the day and so I have an affinity for that. And you're a box kicker. Yes, I was. And then security cameras came out and then all of a sudden you got <laughs> uh, but just the, you know, the logistics infrastructure, the technology platform, obviously smartphones coming out 2007, circa, you know, and a billion people get on the Internet and all these kind of things. It was just I mean, you know, my years of 2007 to 2016 in China were just it was unbelievable you just could not keep up. Um and it was unbelievable. Um and then how marrying e-commerce and and people we used to have these conversations three years ago on the podcast about what's the future of retail and e-commerce and to destroy whatever. And we were having all these deep dive and everybody was moving around that whole landscape was changing. And then COVID hit, which was just this extra kind of um whatever you want to say, I'm trying not to use bad words, but you know, it, you know, or war words, but you know, it just really kind of dropped on the whole situation and upended everything. Um, And then the platforms come out and internet banks, you know, really start to take hold and, and financial, just like, it's just yeah. incredible. So yeah, yeah I was. mean, there's so much that we could talk about there, but I, I do want to keep it moving and I apologize to the listeners for taking them down that hole and then cutting them off. <laughs> A lot of our audience do uh, run and, and our brand owners at, at smaller, mid midsize Western consumer brands. And they might, and as we've said, should be considering APAC expansion. Now, everything that we've talked about, it doesn't, it doesn't paint an easy picture an easy path at all right you know and and we we talk about how sophisticated things are it might be kind of warding people off right so so in a two-fold type of question why should brands expand into apac given some of the likely concerns and as you mentioned a little bit you know about some of the pillars of how do a, they expand successfully and what does then is successful APAC strategy contain? Okay,
1: I think the, the answer to your first question is very, very simple. Where else are you going to get the growth? Mm, yeah. uh, honestly, it's it's that simple. If you're looking to grow your business, uh, frankly, whether you're small, medium, or large, growing in North America is extremely difficult right now. Growing in Europe is, is probably even more difficult. Right? Where are you going to get it? Where are you going to go for that? So for me, you know, Everywhere between Dubai and Japan is where you need to look. South Korea down to Australia. Right? That's where you need to go. And yes, I mean we can, you know, of course, you know, sat here as a as an advisor, as a consultant to businesses looking to get into Asia Pacific. I, I am obviously going to say you, you need to be thoughtful, right? <laughs> About how you do this. But that's easily, you know, reinforced by looking at sort of case studies. You do need to be thoughtful. Honestly. I think if you go in with your eyes wide open, if you partner with the right people in the market, if you don't try to over control, if you get beyond this myth, uh, the two pervasive myths in my view, one, I'm an international brand, therefore, everybody's going to buy my business, my, my, my product from the get go, and they're going to love me. Right? And two, I can do in Bangalore exactly what I do in Marylebone, London, right? and it's going to be great right if you can get beyond those two simple in my view blockers and it's remarkable how many people still have those views by the way absolutely remarkable the expectations that people go in with and you can work with the right partners in the market and each market requires a different model i always say you know japan and india license it work with partners they are so complicated for completely different reasons Trying to do those markets directly is is it, the juice is not worth the squeeze, right? But there are other sort of markets in, in Asia Pacific that sit in between that where You've got different different permutations of model that work. So having the right model is also absolutely critical. As an operating model, you know, are you with a JV? Are you with are you direct? Are you with a distributor? Are you with a licensee? You know, and listening, of course, to the local consumer. Back to mind, there's no cookie cutter solution here. Listen to the local consumer, right? And work out what's at the core of your brand. What work out what is stone, what is wood, what is clay at every level, at the strategic level, at the tactical level, at the executional level. Work those things out, and you you have a very very good shot at, at being successful in the Asia Pacific markets. And then finally, just to sort of bookend that is. Don't under-egg your investment, particularly in China. Be realistic about what you're going to need to invest in order to cut through and and develop
0: positive awareness for your brand. Underestimating that is a fatal flaw. Yeah, agreed. And it's not the first time that that advice has been passed along. Um, you know, just you know, you're, you prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Um, Absolutely. Uh, but it, it's it is a it. You, you just have to be really ready to work right maybe you know if this is what you're doing at the twilight of your career um you know you may mm. <laughs> you know may not because you you need to have some energy and you need to you yeah. know are they, you know you need to almost adopt the 996 um mm. and, and 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 get kind of local with with what you're doing and you need to compete at that level and let me tell you um you know that's you know that's the the pro leagues right there so um you know it's going to be much more difficult to to win than than it may have been for you early on but anyway um just it but you have to do it if you want to scale you if you want to grow you you just really you 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 just need good advice and good partners um and and uh, thick skin and and uh, a deep wallet um now let's talk about India a little bit we don't often get to talk to about India a lot on this show Um, and I know that you recently set up, you know, consultancy office there. Um, and I'd like to get your assessment of India. Let's I'm going to, I want to ask you about e-commerce to tie this, this show off. So we'll hold that piece out a bit, but what is your assessment of India as a consumer market? And should India be on the radar for global consumer brands who aren't already there?
1: So let's start with the second part. Absolutely yes. Right. One hundred percent yes. Right the market, as I said earlier, is moving at an incredibly fast pace. The consumer is moving at an incredibly fast pace. The demographics are moving at an incredibly fast pace and in the right direction as well. Right. The the challenge with India is so many people have been there from a business point of view or personal point of view, it's incredible India, you know, incredible India, lovely place. But my God, it's complicated. My God, there's there's clearly huge wealth disparity. You know, the middle class is actually a very small segment. Yes, that's all true. But that was also all true of China 20 years ago. Um, the The difference between India today and China 20 years ago is that one, you now have the full fat Internet. Right, and they, they are incredibly connected to that. Right, um, the other one is oh, honestly the local talent is unbelievably good, and English language is spoken by everybody. So you've got you've got a real enabler there with the digital world, as it were, um, and you've got an incredible pool of local talent that can help you get there and help you run your business, um, and the. The Indian business community is so hungry for opportunities. I mean, like you wouldn't believe, you know, um, you and I shared a story before we started recording, where you shared a story with me about, you know, you've got to be successful so you do what you can. That's exactly what it is in India at the moment. It's a little hard to see through, um, you know, some of what you encounter in India. I mean, let's just balance the picture a little bit. Okay. But... It's changing so quickly and the government regulations are also moving in the right direction as well. So absolutely brands need to be there, but it, it, all the same rules apply. Don't underestimate the complexity, work with the right partner, be prepared to invest, be patient, right? And understand the right model and listen to that consumer.
0: Let's actually tie that off now with talking about e-commerce, how big is e-commerce? What are the main platforms? What, what does that 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 sector look like in India?
1: Well, the main platforms are obviously you've got, you know, you've got Mintra and the other local operators and so on and so forth. I mean, they are dominant, right? There's no doubt about that. But it's not like China back in the day where Tmall, say it quietly, used to shut everybody else down, Mm. right? It's not Mm -hmm. that at all, right? Yeah. Which means you can have... You, you can be on multiple marketplaces. You can operate those businesses and invest across all of them, and you can also have your own web shop as well, right? And you can get the traffic to that web shop. So it's a much broader uh, landscape, and probably one that's more familiar to North American and European operators than the one in China, which was a truly closed ecosystem, like the Galapagos Islands, right? Yeah, it was completely different. The Wall Garden yeah, I don't know how many times I, I've had to explain to some sort of bemused North American, you know, uh, econ professional that no all is not like Amazon at
0: all. Well, back in the day, <laughs> Alibaba used to block links to products through searches on Baidu. So that, you know, would change indeed. the whole thing. Like you can search on Google and then direct link go and buy on Amazon and they work together like that. It was very different in, in china you would do a product search on baidu and then but you had to leave the baidu ecosystem and re-up and enter yourself into and go find it again on the platform in which you wanted to buy it because of those wall garden kind of cultures
1: yeah so you don't get that in india so the opportunity to excel on, on, on e-commerce is 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 really say easier more straightforward, perhaps, is a better word, right, um, than it was, was in China back in the day until quite recently, actually. I mean, how big can it be? It, that's, you know, how long is a piece of string? It depends what your brick-and-mortar footprint looks like. Um, but, you know, I, I, again, I would say India, omni-channel, and I don't particularly like that term. I've actually spent some time defining what that means for folks Um, and let's define it quickly now, right? So your stores are not just stores, they click and collect they're distribution centers, right? They are places where you operate your CRM, they are places where you communicate your brand and you have a single view of inventory so that you're not, you don't have captive inventory for different channels, different geographies and so on and so forth, right? That's what I mean when I say omni-channel. It's an absolute must. In India, particularly given the geography and the way the population or the consumer population that we're probably going to be interested in are dispersed around the country. But India is also so much more than Delhi and Mumbai, right, which is what people think of, I think. You know, those tier two cities um, are tier two, tier three. I'm coming up incredibly quickly and just, you know, a little personal thing here. You know, I, I flew up. Um, from London to Edinburgh on uh, Monday, and was delayed for four hours uh, due to a thunderstorm. Where he fell out the tarmac. It took me nine hours to go five, six hundred miles. And I, 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 I swear blind now, I'm not travelling domestic in the UK ever again. Right? I, I'm going to drive everywhere. Right. Um, whereas when I travel in India, it's fantastic to places that you wouldn't think. Being an ignorant, bigoted Westerner should be fantastic, right? Go to Udaipur, and your experience at the airport is incredibly smooth, despite there being lots of people there. I mean, the the Bangalore on New Terminal is amazing, right? Um, And so all of this is coming together, and I think that's what makes
0: India so exciting. I, I want to go there so bad. I
1: do. You won't ever see the world the same again, honestly.
0: Yeah, more. Well, probably less on that for me, hopefully for for, for, for the audience. But I um, yeah, I, I'd like to actually I mean, I'd like to go for a couple of years to places if I really want to kind of understand digestive yeah. culture uh, a, a little bit. So um, I tend to do it in big chunks like I did with China. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it's exciting. I think we're going to start talking about India uh, a lot more just being Southeast Asia and, and trying to cover everything. Um, it is a little bit untapped, especially for us on the podcast, but it is definitely another region right in behind that needs to be on people's radar as well. So completely agree with you. Um, John Gearing, uh, he is the, uh, the founder, the owner uh, of his own consultancy, JBG Consulting and Advisory. Uh, John, thank you very much for coming on the show today. It's
1: been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, as usual, for everybody who is listening to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever, uh, don't forget that we have the video on YouTube on the WPIC YouTube channel. You get your shorts, you get the full length thing. Everything is there. You can come and see John and I. But then if you're watching us on the YouTube channel, don't forget that we also have the podcast. If you need your hands and your eyes for other things, then yes, you can, uh, you can just plug in the headphones and listen to us there. So from all of us at The Negotiation, for myself and for John Gearing, thank you very much for coming on the show. We will see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with.